All right, if you guys want to go ahead and uh, get your Bibles and open up to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Oh man, studying, completely have my mind set on getting through verse 11 and at about eight o'clock as I was just wrapping up my notes, uh, everything's like, you're making it through verse four today, buddy. And so guess we'll see. No, I'm joking. Yeah. You can look through verse four is basically the goal for the day. Uh, and so it's titled today, no condemnation, no condemnation. Romans eight is one of the most celebrated and beloved chapters in the whole of scriptures. The Puritans would call chapter 8, the great 8. The great 8. It's a storehouse of gospel blessings. Some have said it's the high point of all the Bible. If you were to drop your Bible, it's been said, your Bible should fall open to the book of Romans in chapter 8. And I always loved that that was said because in my Bible that I had kind of through high school, through school of ministry till I was about 20 years old, uh, my Bible fell apart from Romans 8 uh, on the New Testament, like fell out, you know, it was like Romans 8, you know, and uh, you should have good finger oil smudge marks uh, in this chapter. It's been said that all of the Bible is equally inspired, but not all of the Bible is as equally inspiring. And Romans chapter 8 is very inspiring. The uh, 17th century Thomas Jacob said, It may be styled the chapter of chapters. From first to last, it is high gospel. And it is all gospel. It's matter being entirely evangelical. It pulsates with the story of the Bible. It clarifies the totality of the biblical record. Martin Luther said, Congregations ought to know the entire book of Romans word for word and memorize it. And for me as a young youth pastor, I became a youth pastor when I was um, 20 years old, a high school pastor at Calvary Corvallis, and I started out in the book of Philippians, and then I went to Romans, and when we got to Romans 8, we paused our teaching and spent about a month, every time we gathered, we worked on memorizing Romans chapter 8 as a youth group. And I'll tell you what, that time spent memorizing Romans chapter 8 has just stuck with me. Uh, This uh, this chapter has just stuck with me. And so I want to encourage the whole church to memorize Romans chapter 8 while we're in uh, this chapter. And so, you know, I said we're making it through verse 4 today. So you have some time, right? We got Christmas and some Christmas messages and things. You got a little time. And let me just give you a little pattern on how to memorize big portions of scripture, okay? And so what you want to do is you want to say the verse four times, okay? So you just read it, say that verse four times, and then you write out that verse, okay? So then write it out, and then you're going to say it again from memory, 
okay? Because you've already said it four times. You've written it out. You kind of ponder it as you write it, right? And then say it from memory. And for me, I use different colors to kind of say different things and point out different things, but that's just how to do one verse. Then when you move on to the next verse, do that again. Say the next verse four times, write that next verse out, and then from memory, say the first verse and the second verse together. And you can do that. I would say in a day, you could do five verses like that. Okay. I memorized, um, Matthew chapter one through six in that pattern. And if you know, chapter one, it's genealogy. Okay. So if you can do the genealogy of Jesus, you can do anything. Okay. So uh, so I would just encourage you, oh, we made it through verse four this week. Okay, so let's do verses one through four this week as a church and memorize the great eight, this incredible chapter loved and watch. I'm telling you all these, I know it's something, 30 something verses off the top of my head. You, uh, it'll come to you in your deepest need. You'll be quoting for, I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And man, it'll be like, where did that come from? You know, and it'll just bring such encouragement uh, and life to you. And so uh, I want to encourage you with Martin Luther as a congregation to memorize uh, Romans 8. Uh, this chapter, Douglas Moo said, begins with no condemnation in verse 1. And it ends with no separation. I just quoted that, that uh, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So no condemnation, verse one, ends with no separation and in between no defeat. No defeat as Christians. Uh, further, not a single imperative to do is issued in the entire chapter, Leon Morris says. What we read are rather glorious privileges that the Christian believer can enjoy through their union with Christ. John Stott titled this section, God's Spirit in God's Children. We know the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel promised and foretold a new age when the spirit of God would be put into uh, the, the people of God. And here in chapter eight, we see how and when that happens. Uh, it was Tim Keller that titled this uh, first 13 verses of chapter eight, fighting in the spirit, fighting in the spirit. We especially will see that in verse 13. And so Johnny taught Romans uh, 7, part 2 last week. I've heard that it was awesome. I started listening to it. Didn't make it very far before I, uh, life pulled me away from my phone. Um, but Romans 7 doesn't say everything about the Christian life, our new condition. It seems we're showed a double nature that we're going to be shown more of in chapter 8, the flesh versus the spirit. 
And chapter 7, what Johnny taught actually shows that we can go into a whole lot of distress if we live focused on the flesh. And chapter 8 is going to show us that we can live according to the Spirit and have life and peace. And so Paul's going to give us direction on how to live in the Spirit. Unless we do, Tim Keller said, we will find ourselves continually doing what we hate. That's what Johnny taught on last week. Now, in chapter 7, you might have noticed this, the law and all of its synonyms are mentioned some 31 times, and the Holy Spirit is only mentioned one time in chapter 7. But in the first 27 verses of chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is referred to 19 times by name, which shows us that the Christian life is essentially life in the Spirit. That is life that is sustained, life that is animated, life that is directed, life that is enriched by the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, true Christian discipleship is inconceivable and impossible. And so chapter 7, where it has that word I so many times in the 30s, I, 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 it's been bent into an S in chapter 8 for spirit, 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 spirit. We see the battle against remaining corruption from how to obey in chapter 7 to who will deliver me so I can obey. Chapter 7 showed us the problem of sin and chapter 8 brings the solution home. The Holy Spirit is a topic that's covered in chapter 8, but the apostle uh, also adds not only the Holy Spirit as a topic, but the absolute security of the children of God. And so this is very important for those that are constantly battling with, have I lost my salvation? Have I, lot, have I done something to have, you know, misplaced my salvation or fallen from grace? Have I stumbled that I should fall? And uh, in Romans chapter 8 will be really encouraging concerning the topic of eternal security or absolute security for the children of God. According to Charles Hodge, the whole chapter is a series of arguments most beautifully arranged in support of this one point, the security of the Christian. And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones agrees with Hodge by saying, I make bold to assert that the great theme of chapter 8 is not sanctification. The great theme is the security of the Christian. I would say, man, if I were to tell you chapter 8, sanctification is the theme. And Martin Lloyd-Jones would say, more than that even would be the security of the Christian. So if you're always feeling that weighty you know, hand of the devil upon your heart, telling you you're not saved, then you need to memorize chapter 8. You need to own Romans chapter 8. Um, at the same time, the two topics of sanctification and eternal security are very closely related. And so let's start out in verse 1 with the subheading, or, or really the title of today's message even, no condemnation. 
no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So let's break it apart with the first three words. There is therefore. Therefore points us to what came before in chapters 1 through 7. In chapters 1 through 3 verse 19, we see the depravity of man. In chapter 3 verse 20 through chapter 5, we see that we're justified by grace through faith. And then chapters 6 through 7 speak of sanctification, that we're set apart from sin and from this world, this fallen world, and that that's not done by the flesh, but by the spirit as well. Uh, This, therefore, it's tempting to say, it just points us back to the immediate context of the end of chapter 7, and could be paraphrased like this, in light of all I've just said, And in light of all I've said, would tell us that it goes actually beyond the end of chapter 7, Johnny's message last week, and takes us clear to the beginning of the book. Though 7 does seem to help with this immediate context, being the cold, shadowy side of the house, Romans chapter 8, when you're just reading it through, is the sunny, warm side of the house. John Stott said the apostle is summing up or expressing a provisional conclusion. The deduction he draws, however, does not seem to come from chapter seven alone, but from his whole argument thus far, and especially from what he's written in chapters three, four, and five about salvation that comes through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. No condemnation. What an incredibly beautiful phrase. It's a verdict. It speaks of a complete public disapproval and executive judgment against someone. Condemnation is a grave sentence. Imagine all the trials you've ever watched in the media and on TV and and the famous ones, you know, and that great moment comes and the drum roll as the jury members stand and and give that, that sentence or what they have found that you are guilty only to be followed by a sentence by the judge, which is how it's all to be carried out prison time or maybe the death penalty condemnation to be condemned is to be damned. But for the Christian, in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. Breathe that in. For the Christian, there is no condemnation. In the Greek, condemnation is this sign of guilt and judgment placed on it. And yet we took the sign as sinners turned it neon and made it click, 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 like it's outside of some saloon. And the Lord says, no, there's no guilt. There's no condemnation. There's no shame. Romans 8 tells us the first blessing of salvation is expressed in that we are not condemned. And this is equivalent 
to actually being positively justified. Justified is the flip side of the same coin of no condemnation. And it takes us back to Romans 5.1, where therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're justified by faith, and we know that we are at peace with God. Flip that coin around. It's the same beautiful gold coin. And we find not only are we positively justified, but we're negatively not condemned. Okay? Justification by faith from chapter 5 verse 1 has been called the hook of the book. The glorious chorus. Paul declares justification by faith then goes on to explain and come back how justification by grace through faith, we can sigh with a sweet sigh of relief. He goes on and explains and explains and comes back to justification by faith and shows us that in that we are not condemned. No condemnation. These two words show us our position as Christians to be not condemned, to be legally justified, absolved from any debt, from any penalty. No one has any charge against you. A person who is in Christ Jesus is not under any condemnation from God. Paul already has said this in chapter five, a tremendous truth. That God has nothing at all against us, finds no fault, nothing to punish us for. Did you come in here this morning with that ringing in your heart? Just completely solidified in the fact that God has nothing against you, nothing holding against you, nothing to punish you for right now, nothing. Or did you come in here like, there's three things right now. I can tell you right now, he's got to have against me. He's holding this against me. He's holding this from last night. He's holding this from a year ago. He's holding this from my teenage years. All of these things, and it's weighing heavy upon you. And I'll tell you right now, you don't know Romans chapter eight. You got to have these two words, no condemnation, you know, tattooed on your forehead. (laughs) There's no condemnation. He holds nothing against you. There's no condemnation at all for a believer categorically. And it's not waiting in the wings to come back and cloud your future. Rather, there's acceptance, there's welcome for you, and the Lord joys in calling you his children. The great 28th century preacher, a Welsh man named Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that most of our troubles are due to our failure to realize the truth of this verse. What happens is if we forget that there's now no condemnation, on the one hand, we feel far more guilt, unworthiness, and pain than we should. From this may come divisiveness, or rather, uh, drivenness from a need to prove ourselves. We're greatly sensitive to criticism, defensiveness, a lack of confidence in relationships, a lack of confidence in joy and prayer and worship, and even addictive behavior 
which can be a reaction to a deep sense of guilt and unworthiness. So Martin Lloyd-Jones is telling us, we have got to rejoice in this phrase, there is therefore no condemnation, or we will be wallowing in despair, even as Christians. Christians who don't understand no condemnation, Tim Keller said this, only obey out of fear and duty. That's not nearly as powerful as motivation of love and gratitude. And then again, Martin Lloyd-Jones summed up with this illustration. The difference between an unbeliever sinning and a Christian sinning is the difference between a man transgressing the laws of the state and a husband who's done something he should not do in relationship to his wife. He's not breaking the law, He's wounding the heart of his wife. That is the difference. It's no longer a legal matter. It's a matter of personal relationship and love. The man does not cease to be the husband legally in that instant. Law does not come into the matter at all. In a sense, it's now something much worse than a legal condemnation. I would rather offend against the law of the land objectively outside me than hurt someone whom I love. In that case, you've sinned, of course, but you've sinned against love. So you may and you should feel ashamed, but you should not feel condemnation because to do so is to put yourself back under the law. Do you see the difference? Love relationship versus law relationship. It points us back to chapter seven from two weeks ago. There is therefore now no condemnation to who? Verse one, to who? To those who are in Christ Jesus or the new living translation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. It is not safe for those who are cool with Jesus, who are good with Jesus, me and him are good, or for those who like Jesus, but to those who are in Christ Jesus. If we are not righteous by the work of Christ Jesus, then we are condemned. That opposite is true for us. There's no middle ground. You're in or you're out. For those who are in Christ Jesus, The key to our victory is knowing his opinion of us that we're in him. Charles Spurgeon said, every sermon is about one thing hammered down 1,000 ways, our position in Christ. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore... And then I wanted to go back, if you can go backwards real quick, because I know I said in Christ Jesus, but there's this word now. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The word now in verse one is very important. Something new has happened. God has intervened in redemptive history. The verdict that was over us, The aftermath of Adam's sin has been changed from guilty to free. And that applies to us now in this very moment. There's two types of now. 
First of all, there's a finally now. A child finally gets to open the present now. But then there's the already now, something coming early. And this speaks of this present immediate now. Uh, I really like the comedian Brian Regan. And he tells this joke about, you know, you go to the optometrist and you take these different eye tests and there's just so much pressure on getting things right, you know, and he just references the little test where, you know, you look into the goggles and there's like a nice little scene with a house, you know, and there's uh, like an arrow on the street and you have to tell the moment the little car drives by the little arrow. And, you know, he just talks about how there's so much pressure to say at that exact moment when that car, you know, he, he's like, he's watching, he's watching, he's watching the cars going now, no, now, no, now, now, you know, and, and he just is so stressed out by it that he ends up with the big Coke bottle glasses, you know, with like a, a pivoting light on the outside of it or something like that. You know, it's all Brian Regan's joke. Can't take any credit, but you know, uh, but I was just thinking there's now, there's now no con now, 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 you know, it, it's whenever, because we need it to be said to us, don't we? Because the devil is just constantly, that's his job. He's the accuser of the brethren who day and night does nothing but slander Christians. Have you read the book of Job? The days that the sons of, of God, the, the angels, what they're called, they come and they stand before and here comes Satan. And, and the Lord says, where have you been? What are you doing? You know, and he says, oh, I've been going to and fro throughout the whole world to accuse. And he says, so let me bring up Job here real quick. Right. And so Satan, he's the accuser. And later on, we'll see when he's cast out of heaven in revelation chapter 13, he's called that great accuser of the brethren. Whereas Jesus, he ever lives to make intercession for us right now. Satan, all he does is he is bringing accusations against you. And he's whispering them in your ear and he wants you to be discouraged and depressed. And just like Martin Lloyd-Jones says, all those negative things that come from walking and forgetting no condemnation. And so uh, as he's uh, accusing us, you know, sometimes it's in the most wonderful times with the Lord. You're there worshiping and then here the devil is and he's just like, you know what you've done and you know what you've done and you think that he could ever forgive you for this or that. There's no way, you know, and, and you just put your hands down and kind of get discouraged and, you know, and it's just satanic. It's not gospel. There is therefore now no condemnation. Memorize it, believe it, quote it. Satan likes to bring up our pasts. Uh, this was uh, Tony Meridius. Uh, he said, Satan likes to bring up our pasts, but you need to remind him of Jesus's past. That we're not under condemnation because Jesus was condemned in place of us. As the old hymn says, in my place, condemned he stood. Condemnation, no more. This statement is essential to the gospel. Let's look at a few other scriptures that kind of back this up. Isaiah 54, 17. A friend of mine wrote a beautiful song that went along with this. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue which rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. 
This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. Isn't that awesome? No weapon formed against you will prosper. Any tongue that comes against you to condemn you, guess what? You condemn it. You remind it what Jesus has done, crushing his head at the cross. And in the process, he bruised his heel. You condemn Satan. You speak truth. This is the heritage of the Lord. And you declare what Isaiah tells us. My righteousness is from God. This is the heritage of the Lord. What about John three eighteen? He who believes in him, man, this is right after John three sixteen, right? He who believes in him shall have everlasting life. For the son of man did not come into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might uh, be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And this is the condemnation. The light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So even Jesus says, if you believe in me, you will not be condemned. Again, Jesus in John 5, 24, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. And shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. And so when you start feeling that heavy hand of condemnation or sense the long bony finger of Satan pointing at you, pointing out your sins, remember these verses that I believe in him and I have everlasting life and will not come into judgment. Galatians 3.13 uh, start Galatians in Polina today. Dustin Cloud is starting the book of Galatians in Polina. Pretty exciting. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so, oh man, the devil's condemning you. All these things are coming up from your past and it's weighty and you feel that the fires of hell lapping at your heels and you can just speak Galatians that he's become a curse for me, having been nailed to the tree. And then in our own chapter, Romans 8, go towards the end in verse 33 and 34, this all, after memorizing it, This verse comes to my mind when I think of condemnation. Think of Romans chapter one. There's therefore now no condemnation. And then I go to Romans 8.33 where it says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Well, we know Job is just an example of that sneaky snake going around bringing charges against the sons of, of men. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? And you can almost just paraphrase and say, it's not God. Because then he goes on to say, it's God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It's not God. Okay. It is Christ who died. And furthermore is also risen. Who's even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. So what this verse is saying is, God is not the one who's condemning you. 
The son of God is not the one who's condemning you. What's he doing? He died and bore your condemnation and now he lives. And what does he do while he's living? He's praying for you. He ever lives to make intercession for you. He is for you, not against you. He's not condemning you. This is the glory of the gospel of grace, my friends. First John three twenty through 21. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have great confidence towards God. Oh man, have you ever been through those times where your heart is condemning you and you just feel like there's no hope for me? Yes, I've... Yes, I've heard the gospel. I love the gospel. I've received the gospel. I believe the gospel. I trust in the gospel. I've got no hope outside of the gospel. It's what Jesus has done. And then, oh, (coughs) maybe you do that while you're feeling this. (coughs) You know, oh my goodness. But I still just feel the weight and condemnation of my sin and the wrath of God. I just feel it. And, And John just says, oh my goodness, If your heart condemns you and the heart is just the seat of emotions, oh, God is greater than your little weak, puny, pitiful heart. (laughs) Oh, I just feel, shh, no condemnation. Oh, but I just feel I've done this. Shh, no condemnation. But I feel it. Shh, no condemnation. God is greater than your heart. And he knows all things. If your heart does not condemn you, what did it say? I, I don't know. I must have forgot to put the verse on for you guys. I'm ch- ch- plowing through, throwing verses on the screen. And it says, if your heart does not condemn you, this is awesome. Maybe you're someone you're like, I just never feel condemnation. I just like, praise the Lord. I don't have that like right now anyways, you know, you'll never know when the enemy likes to throw that curveball and hit you in the eye. But if, it, if your heart is there where you're just, I'm, I don't feel condemnation. It says, that's because you have confidence towards God. And that we're going to see next week is so important that our mind is fixed on the spirit and what he's done for us. Because that gives us, it bolsters our confidence that it's not about me anyways. It's about him and what he's done. If you're walking in condemnation, it's been said the real sin is that you're not trusting in God. To say you need to take some of the guilt You're lying against yourself, saying that the cross is not enough. And so if you just allow that little bit of guilt, and man, I just was just thinking this morning, I was like, maybe you're someone who you've had a divorce. And that is just so painful. And you just feel, oh, I know the verses. I know Sermon on the Mount. I know that, man, divorce and adultery and Man, and then, and then, man, remarriage after divorce. And you just feel like those are like some, there's some, there's some heavy true things that you need to work through regarding divorce and remarriage. I'm not saying that there's not, but if you're in Christ Jesus and you're, you just like repentant for just like, man, whatever I did, Lord, that led to that point, I just need forgiveness. And I just want to walk in your will and your ways and your heart towards marriage and Man, if you just have that heart of just, man, I've repented of sin and I'm moving towards God's glorious plans. Man, I would just say, don't let the enemy condemn you anymore. 
There's no condemnation for you, Christian. If you've had an abortion, did you know that in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation for you? If you've hit somebody in an accident and killed them, there's no condemnation for you if you're in Christ Jesus. We've already established if you're outside of Christ Jesus and you just sin and you've got no forgiveness of sin because you're out, there's condemnation for you. Come to Christ Jesus today. But in all of our heinous sins that we label, we give the scarlet letter to thee, right? Premarital sex person, scarlet lettered, stitch it on. Abortion, stitch it on. Abusing children, stitch it on. I mean, we've got our list, don't we? We are pretty sure that these are unforgivable. And we forget Saul of Tarsus, who says, chief of all sinners right here. I'm a pattern that if God can forgive me, he can forgive anybody. And then we can say, I rejoice in that brother Paul. And I join you by saying there is no condemnation for the Sauls of Tarsus or the Rory's of Klamath Falls. <laughs> All right. Count me in on justification by grace through faith. But if you're going to go ahead and allow that little thing that you've done, or the big thing, I'm not trying to minimize it, the sin that you've done to still identify you and that that's something that you just let there be guilt. I, sh- I deserve that. I own my guilt. I own the shame. I'm so ashamed. I'll keep that shame. I did that. I did that. Then you're essentially saying, and the gospel's wrong and his grace isn't enough and his blood doesn't cover sin and Jesus didn't bear it for me. And he doesn't stand in my place as my mediator between God and man. And so what is it? It was... Robert Mounts, the professor who said to insist on feeling guilty is but another way of insisting on helping God with our salvation. How deeply embedded in human nature is the influence of works righteousness. We still want to own a little of it. We still want to say it's it's still on me to a degree. It's not on you. It's on Jesus the gospel of grace. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And we're going to see in the weeks to come what that looks like for us to not walk in accordance and in step of the flesh and its desires and its cravings and, and its worldview, but in the spirit, his kingdom, his ways, his power, his motivation for his glory. And we'll see that in the weeks of come. We'll we'll expand upon that. And so we go from no condemnation to no bondage, to no bondage. Look at verse two, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Now, the part that I did catch of Johnny's, he put up on the screen kind of three meanings of the word law. Uh, And and in my notes, mine come a little different, but just differently phrased. Paul uses the word law to mean three different things. Number one, it could be God's standards, the Mosaic law, the Torah. It could be secondly, a general principle in the way that Paul puts it. Or three, a force or a power. 
Law can reference a force or a power. And so in verse 2 here, law seems to fairly clearly carry the meaning of more of a force or a power. So the force of the power of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the force and power of sin and death. Put another way, salvation deals with our legal guilt from verse 1 and our internal corruption in verse 2. Paul calls this uh, law of the spirit the ministry of the spirit. So we have two laws given to us in chapter or verse 2. We have the law of sin and death, also found in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, where it says, he made us, uh, who has made us sufficient and as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And so the law, that power, it just brought death. Uh, and then we have the second one, the spirit of life that's in Christ Jesus. And so, um, so we have these two laws. We, we started out with the law or the force of the moral law in Romans chapter seven, and it is now ruled out by the law of the spirit of life and the gospel of grace. Someone once said that the law of gravity rules until a greater law replaces it, the law of aerodynamics. What keeps this jumbo 747 jet up in the air with all of its passengers and cargo? The law of gravity is seeking to pull it down. And the law of aerodynamics has replaced it. And watching Storybots with my kids is where I really learned about this. With the great little song about thrust, drag, weight, and lift. You know, on how something flies like that. But, but those laws completely defeat that heavy, heavy pulling law of gravity. And we see that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is greater and conquers the law <coughs> excuse me of sin and death. And so how God does it we see in verse 3 for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin he condemned sin in the flesh. So I just Love, love this verse. Man, when we memorize it this week, you guys, it's going to just be going through all the more. You'll be thinking about how, oh man, Jesus, um, he, he replaced the law of sin and death. He conquered the law of sin and death. Uh, it couldn't work because it was weak in the flesh. Now, it's been said, and we remember this from chapter 7 when I taught it two weeks ago, that God's law had no flaw. Remember that? God's law had no flaw, but the problem was me. My flesh could not conform. And Paul's conclusion was that in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Johnny taught that last week. Uh, Sandy Adams says, I love the truth in this jingle. To run and work the law commands, yet gives me neither feet nor hands. But better news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. So what the law could not do in that it was weak in the flesh, and that was my flesh, I the law was fine, 
just, it didn't give me the wings to fly. God would do it by sending his son. And guys, this is some deep theology here. In fact, it's an incredible Christmas passage. So you were really hoping, man, we got the Christmas trees up and the lights are blinking and jingling. Uh, When are we going to get into some Christmas stuff? And it's been said, every sermon is a Christmas sermon. Okay, but we happen to get into this great phrase here that God sent his own son (coughs) in the likeness of sinful flesh. So two reasons God sent his son, number one, to become human, to become human. This is called the incarnation. It's the doctrine of the incarnation that God became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, Stott said, I don't have a quote for you. I'll just read it. The statement that it was his own son whom he sent may well be intended to indicate that he had enjoyed a prior life of intimacy with the father. It certainly expresses the father's sacrificial love in sending him. I say that because it's important to note that um, Jesus wasn't just a prophet that was sent, but he was God's son who was sent from heaven. And so Jesus has uh, an eternity past with the father. So God sent his son to number one, become human. And number two, to become a sin offering. This speaks of atonement. There's an old Christmas song that my friend Lori wrote, uh, Lori Trask wrote. And it says, the opening phrase of this song is, born to die that I might live. Jesus was born in a manger only to die so that we could live. So Jesus, God was sent his son to become human. And secondly, to become a sin offering, to die for us for atonement. Uh, And then also we have this phrase in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for the sake of time, I wish I had more time to go through this with you guys. Um, And I'm just going to go ahead and read uh, John Stott on this to make it clear The son came neither in the likeness of flesh, only seeming to be human as the docetists taught, for his humanity was real, nor in sinful flesh, assuming a fallen nature, for his humanity was sinless, but in the likeness of sinful flesh, because his humanity was both real and sinless simultaneously. All right, so Jesus came in the flesh, real human, but he never sinned. He's appeared to be like us as he was like us, yet without sin. The scriptures tell us that. And in your own time, Hebrews 4.15 is a good reference for you. And as he came, it was on account of sin, or as an offering of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh And uh, for the sake of time, we're going to wrap up with verse four, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according uh, to the spirit. All right. So why did Jesus come? Why did God, the father send his son to be human and come as atonement and uh, on account of sin to condemn sin? And finally, to fulfill holiness in us. Verse four is key. It's an amazing point. Listen to what Tim Keller has to say about verse four. This is an amazing point 
the thing Jesus lives for, the purpose of his entire life is to make us holy, fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law. This is the greatest possible motive for holy, uh, for living a holy life. Whenever we sin, we endeavor to frustrate the aim and purpose of the entire life, death, and ministry of Jesus Christ. If this doesn't work as an incentive for holy living or for living a holy life, nothing will. Do you catch that? The, just the whole purpose of Jesus coming is that we might live a holy life is what this verse is saying. And so whenever we're not living a holy life, we're frustrating Jesus's purpose for us that he came and lived and died and resurrected for. This ought to be a great motivation for us to live in holiness. And we can go ahead and uh, have Johnny come back in and we'll have uh, the worship team come on up. And usually someone runs and grabs Johnny. So whoever wants that role. But don't worry, I've got a good John Stock quote to help with this. Verse 4 is of great importance for our understanding of Christian holiness. First, holiness is the ultimate purpose of the incarnation and the atonement. The end God had in view when sending his son was not our justification only through freedom from the condemnation of the law, but also our holiness through obedience to the commandments of the law. Second, Holiness consists in fulfilling the just requirements of the law. This is the final answer to antinomians. And if you're new here, you might not know what an antinomian is. We've been working through it for the last four weeks, but don't worry about it if you don't. The moral law has not been abolished for us. It is to be fulfilled in us. Although law obedience is not the ground of our justification, It is in this sense what we are not under the law, but under grace. It is the fruit of it and the very meaning of sanctification. Holiness is Christ-likeness, and Christ-likeness is fulfilling the righteousness of the law. Strap that thing on good, Johnny. No, just kidding. My buddy John uh, open-air preaches in Hungary train stations in the past And he dropped his Taylor guitar on the ground so many times by preaching with his hands up and his guitar strap. And bam, that would hit the Hungarian concrete. And he just would still keep doing it. And that guitar has a special place in heaven. Third, holiness is the work of the Holy Spirit. Romans 7 insists that we cannot keep the law because of our indwelling flesh. Romans 8, 4, insists that we can and must because of the indwelling spirit. <clears throat> and so setting your books aside, your Bibles aside. Oh man, let us just rejoice today in this simple phrase, no condemnation. There is therefore Now, no condemnation. Jesus has taken the penalty of us not fulfilling the law. He's lived, died, buried, rose again. So that now we can keep the law. As a loving husband, 
is faithful to his wife in love relationship. There's no condemnation. There's wounds and pain when we sin, that's true. But there's no condemnation. And now because of the wounds and the pain, we don't want to sin. We don't want to keep hurting the person we love. And it moves us towards obedience. So if you guys will stand with me, we'll just close with receiving. Maybe for you, you come into this church today, and when you came in, you were not a Christian. But today, you would just confess to Jesus, Lord, I'm a sinner. You know what I've done. I know what I've done. And I have just felt the heavy weight of oppressive condemnation on my heart. I know I'm guilty. But today, Lord, in you, I hear that that guilt can be taken away. I can be forgiven. I can be clean. And I can say and hear said over me, no condemnation. Help me to live for you now. Help me to obey you because I love you now, Lord. And just for you, maybe just for the first time in your life, you've prayed to the Lord right now just for forgiveness of sins because of what Jesus did on the cross, dying in your place, shedding his blood to wash away sin. You can just receive that forgiveness right now and you can just be overjoyed with the great eight today, the chapter eight, just already just telling you, hey, there's no condemnation over your life anymore. Rejoice in that. And for us as Christians today who we believe the gospel, we know we're saved, we know we're born again, but we've been, <coughs> we've been struggling with feeling the bony pointy finger of Satan just accusing us day and night. And it's just getting to us. And it's like a big rain cloud over our head and thunder and lightning just bringing us down and depressing. And we've even just fallen into sin because of just condemnation over us. And Lord, we pray that you who are greater than our hearts would just bolster us up, point our eyes to our hope in you, Jesus. Let us live in this joy as Christians that there's no condemnation. Past, present, future, now, no condemnation. It's definitely worth singing about, definitely worth praising about, lifting our hands about, and living for you in response. Let's rejoice in the Lord and close in this song. I hope a message like this just helps you just exalt the Lord and thank the Lord. And and whenever you just hear that accusation from the wicked one about your sin, past, present, whatever, you can just say, no condemnation. He bore my punishment on the cross and just exalt the Lord for the gospel of grace. Such a wonderful good news for us today. God bless you guys. Have a great week. Uh, Hang out for a little bit in the fireside room with us. Enjoy some donuts and coffee on us. And be encouraged today in the Lord. Amen.